Well, here we are uh, in 1 Peter, continuing our, our walk through 1 Peter together. And here we are in what we can call the heart of the letter, after identifying uh, the identity of these believers in Jesus, Peter turns to talk about how they then should live. They are elect exiles. They have, uh, according to God's great mercy, been born again to a living hope. They are God's chosen nation, God's holy people. And as such, they, Peter writes, are to live in a very particular way. So beginning in, uh, really it's in chapter 2, verse 11, he begins to unfold this ethic, uh, this orthopraxy that is built off of the theology, the orthodoxy. Because of who you are, live in this way. He says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And he says this for a purpose so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter calls those who are part of God's holy nation to live in a particular way in public with the purpose of public proclamation. You cannot hide your faith. Rather, you live it out honorably. Now, he begins then to unfold with verse 13 and following, Peter begins to unfold how he defines this honorable conduct, having been made this, live this way in public. And the first thing that we saw last week was this bit about being subject uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or the governor. This week we see Peter say, servants be subject to your masters. In coming weeks we'll see Peter say, wives do this, husbands do this. And there's a very specific reason why Peter writes the way he writes, why he addresses first the general population, then servants, then wives, then husbands. And it's got everything to do with the historical context in which he wrote. So I apologize if for just a second I explain a little bit of the history. I am a history nerd after all. I know that some of you who were math majors may fall asleep at this part. The person next to you will give you an elbow when we move on. So the culture of, of, of Peter's day, the first century, is, is the Roman Empire. Now, one of the things about Rome that, that we have to notice as students of history is that Rome really isn't very original. Everything that they had that was kind of cool or good, they stole from the Greeks. And so we call it the Greco-Roman philosophy of the Mediterranean world. And in the Greco-Roman philosophy of the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world of the first century, one of the things that was highly honored was a rightly ordered society. Now, by rightly ordered, they didn't mean that there wouldn't be any murder, any killing, any theft, because any Roman emperor did all of those things before he had breakfast in the morning. <laughs> what they meant by rightly ordered is that people were in right positions of authority to one another. And so, because the emperor was the one to whom all things and all people answered, especially the senate, the governing body, everybody needed to be rightly ordered to the emperor, recognizing his authority. There's also, in, in the Greco-Roman philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Xenophon, and Seneca, 
this idea that a rightly ordered society began with a rightly ordered household. And so in these authors such as Plato or Aristotle, they talked an awful lot about what we call a household code. As a servant in a household, this is how you're to relate to your master. As a wife in a household, this is how you're to relate to your husband. As a child in a household, this is how you're to relate to your parents. And so it's no accident that Peter begins first, big spectrum, rightly ordered society, submit to your governor, fear God. It's no accident that he immediately steps into saying, servants, this is what you do, nor is it an accident that in the next passage he talks to wives and husbands. He does this because any foreign religion that wants to come into the Roman Empire is judged according to how it either upholds or undermines the rightly ordered society. So you look at what Peter writes, and he's saying to these people, live honorably. Rightly be a part of a rightly ordered society. Don't undermine it. Be a part of it. With some caveats that we'll see. So it's just sort of this natural step that, that, that immediately after addressing how sojourners and exiles are to be rightly ordered with regard to the government, he then turns to address how believers are to be rightly ordered within the household beginning with servants. Okay, now, if your non-history major friend uh, fell asleep, throw the elbow, let's wake up, we'll move on. So the whole issue here comes back to, to, to one of suffering. It's in the context of this rightly ordered household, it's in the context of Peter directly talking to servants, but, but we have to deal with what is everybody's favorite topic, suffering. And suffering, uh, not Suffering that is based upon a consequential suffering of us making a bad decision, but suffering in the name of Jesus, or suffering because of Jesus. But it it begins here with his words to servants in verse 18, if you have your Bibles open. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That doesn't sound very fair, does it? You know, be, be, gentle, uh, be, be subject to the ones who are, treat you well, who, who pay you wages, who, who feed you well, give you a nice comfy room. Oh, but what about if you're subject to the one who's mean, nasty, and crooked? Well, be subject to them as well. Just like the emperor and governing institutions, the master of the household is to be honored and respected by Christian servants or Christian slaves. With that said, however, the three words that we see in the English Standard Version, those three words, with all respect, is perhaps rendered better as with all fear, and it connects that which Peter has to say here with what Peter has already said in verse 17. In verse 17, Peter said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. We saw last week how fearing God sort of changes our, our primary allegiance. So it is for a servant. Be subject to your masters fearing God, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What's really fascinating in this, I think, is that uh, while we see that those in authority are to be respected and honored, to be submitted to, it is only God who is to be feared. That is, it is only God who is supposed to be approached with awe-filled faith. And so when Peter says, uh, be subject to your master, but fear God, he is doing 
one of two things. He's also, he is upholding the rightly ordered household, but at the same time, he is subverting it. And primary or fundamental allegiances have been changed because of Jesus, because of faith in Jesus. And so while out of obedience to the God who is to be feared, servants submit to the authority or masters, even harsh and unjust ones, but because it is God who is to be feared, unjust suffering is going to occur. Because, we saw this, we've seen this, we know this, because in fearing God, There's going to be a time when you disobey your master. An exception, not the rule, but a a reality nonetheless. And, And Peter says in verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If we fear God, if we approach God as the only one to whom we come with awe filled faith, then we will be mindful of God, living out of a place of mindfulness of God. We will run afoul of those in authority over us, which will lead to suffering for doing good. Right? Does that make, you guys tracking with me? No? Yes? Maybe? I'm not sure I am, but that's okay. So being mindful of God may well lead to a servant disobe- disobeying an earthly master. Being mindful of God can and will lead a servant who fears him to not do that which is immoral, even if ordered by the master to whom he or she is supposed to be subject. It's precisely being mindful of God, uh, living in obedient fear of God, and doing that which pleases him that both marks a believer out as a sojourner and an exile and will lead a believer to run afoul of the powers that be. So Christian bakers in Oregon found this out. Right? We know that story. They refused because of their faith in Jesus, because of who they were marked out as an elect exiles. They would not do that which contradicted God's word, and they've run afoul of the government. They're suffering for what is good. And so unjust suffering comes when someone is mindful of good in thought, word, and deed, does something that is good in God's eyes, not good in the world's eyes, and so the world begins to attack, to press, to hammer down. And Peter's talking about suffering that is unjust because of being mindful of God, one has done good. Now what credit is it, Peter says, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If you mess up, if you've wrongly done something and you get punished for it, that you're getting what you're supposed to get. As a kid, I was spanked. When I was eight years old and I did something wrong, I was spanked. I immediately thought, this is not right. I I should not be getting spanked. But now, being 39 years old, having two children, I realized that every time I was ever spanked, my parents were right. Changes perspective, changes everything. If you sin, you ought to expect something to happen. If you break a law, if you do evil, you ought to expect something to happen. But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Doing good as defined by God will lead to suffering. And being mindful of God in the midst of suffering will bear a person up. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter 3. 
on account of their awe-filled faithfulness to God, they refused to bend the knee in a direct or in the violation of a direct order of their master, Nebuchadnezzar. They re- or he ordered them to commit idolatry, and they refused. And so these three faithful men suffered because they were mindful of God and would not disobey the God that they feared. They honored the king. They were subject to their master, but it was God who they feared, and they would not commit idolatry. This led them to suffering for doing good. But in the midst of their suffering, in the face of their punishment, they continued to be mindful of God and trusted that he would do what he willed to do and that it would be good for them when he did it. They suffered because they did what was good in God's eyes. We have modern illustrations all over the place. Uh, in, uh, for the past two years, at least, ISIS has been killing Christians in Iraq and in Syria and beyond simply because they believe in Jesus. There's reports out of uh, Syria where an entire Christian population has been destroyed. One of the survivors said they did it simply because we said we were Christians. They didn't want Christians to live any longer. That's just a simple proclamation. That's simply saying, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and, and I've got people trying to kill me because of it. That's sort of suffering for doing good, I think we would all agree. We're now here uh, in, in what we would say, are, you, know, I, you can't see this if you're listening on um, podcasts, but I'm putting up square, scare quotes. In our, in our civilized societies, quote-unquote, uh, there's ridicule and scorn now because being mindful of God, some Christians won't jump on the modern bandwagon regarding marriage and issues of identity, right? It's happening for doing good, for doing good that is called good by God, not necessarily culture or our masters, suffering will occur. Doing good in God's eyes will lead to suffering. And we really ought not be surprised by this. What an uplifting sermon this is this morning. (laughs) Doing good in God's eyes will lead to suffering. And we really ought not be surprised by this. We just heard a few minutes ago Jesus in John chapter 15 say, or let me back up for just a second, that Peter notes in verse 21, for this, to this, you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen to that first phrase of verse 21. For to this, you have been called. That's like a lead balloon, right? Because usually in, in our Christian, our special church language, in our, in our Christian ease, we strictly limit our use of the word call and the concept that it embodies to those things we consider good. And yet Peter clearly states that believers in Jesus are called to suffer. Just chew on that for a minute. Susan's up here laughing. <laughs> Suffering for doing good was part of Christ's earthly life and ministry, part of uh, the life and ministry of those who follow in his steps. We cannot take a, a little pen, a little pen knife, and cut out the parts of Scripture we don't like. John, we heard it this morning, John wrote, If the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecute you, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
are marked out as God's elect exiles, as his holy nation, Christians have a fundamental allegiance to God. And their beliefs, their values, their priorities are defined by him, which often sets Christians against the world in this context, even a servant to a master. And while Peter is specifically addressing servants, what he says here applies to all believers, all believers in Jesus across time and across space. So all believers in Jesus are called to live as sojourners and exiles to suffer because of the difference Jesus makes. And then when that happens, Christians are to suffer like Jesus did. And this is really, it gets really hard, right? Because it gets really hard as Peter begins to talk about how Jesus suffered and is the model of how we ought to suffer if we follow after him. It gets hard because it runs against everything natural within us. Or maybe I should not speak so generically. It runs against everything natural within me. Now, Peter says that it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's a little hard to swallow. How is it gracious? Gracious? Gracious is supposed to be good. How is suffering ever good? Gracious because it draws us closer to God. Gracious because, as we know from 1 Peter chapter 1, we know that, that it is gracious because God uses trials uh, like fire to gold, which refines it, makes it more pure. God uses suffering to make our faith purer, better, stronger. Gracious because we know that as we suffer for Christ, because of Christ, on account of Christ, God is with us in the midst of that suffering. Gracious because of what God is doing, not so much what everyone around us is doing. And by the way, we, we have to make, make recognition of this. We're here he's suffering because the, the mind is set on Christ or the mind is set on God. This is not the suffering that comes from a consequence of a bad decision. This is not the suffering that comes from saying, here, hold my beer and watch this, and then you snap your Achilles tendon. It's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the suffering that comes from being a fallen human being in a fallen world where there is stroke and there is cancer and there is illness. This, this is a, a suffering on account of being mindful of God, on account of being obedient to God above all else. And when we suffer in that, God says through Peter, this is the way you live. This is the way you deal. This is the way you endure. And that's not to say that, that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are not concerned with us in every other kind of suffering. They clearly are. But when we suffer on Jesus' account, if a believer suffers for doing good, then they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, says, Blessed are you. Jesus, it's gracious because in it we draw closer to Jesus, the one who suffered righteously, who suffered rightly in his doing uh, good, he suffered. Here in verses 22 through 24, Peter uses Isaiah's song of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12, to describe how Jesus suffered, and then he applies it to how believers are to suffer. And as we read through this, again, notice just how 
Jesus' example goes against our natural instincts, our natural inclinations. He committed no sin, Peter writes, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And Jesus was mocked, slapped, spat upon, cursed, and he did not sin. Jesus didn't lie to get out of his suffering. He didn't sin in his suffering. I've lied to get out of things. How about you? I was 14 years old. I went to the Kansas State Fair with my friend Jason, and he had those little party popper things from firecrackers. You pull them apart, and it goes pop. So we went on this fair. It was called the Old Mill, and it was a water ride. But it was pitch black. It was kind of this combination of this water ride with um, uh, in a haunted house, and so it was pitch black, and things would jump out at you, right, and try to scare you. And it, was, it was a good time. It was funny. You know, it was August in Kansas, September in Kansas. It was hotter than the gates of hell, and, and it was cool in there, so I liked to ride it a lot. And we took it, those little firecrackers and popped it open, right? And there was this big flash. Well, instantly, we got yanked out of our boat, taken behind the old woodshed, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and they're threatening, with, uh, they're threatening us to go get the Kansas Highway Patrol and arrest us. And the guy looks at me and he goes, what's your name? And I said, Bob Weedle. <laughs> It gets even better because Bob Weedle was the, the name of my principal in high school. <laughs> Lied to get out of it. I'm not alone, Forrest. Don't be throwing that look at me. <laughs> but Jesus didn't. Jesus doesn't. And, and when we suffer for doing that which is good, how dare we walk it back? If we're suffering on account of Jesus, how dare we lie about it? Well, Jesus didn't. He committed no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus was criticized in an abusive, angry, and insulting manner. They, they mocked him when he was on the cross. They said, if you are the Son of God, bring yourself down from there. You prophesy, they had blindfolded him at one point in the trial and said, prophesy, and they smacked him around. Which of us hit you? Undoubtedly, in his, in his ministry, in his life, undoubtedly, they called into question his, his fatherhood, his, his, his legitimacy. And yet, when he was criticized in an abusive, angry, and insulting manner, Jesus did not respond. When I'm threatened or when I'm criticized, my, my automatic reaction is to try to fight back, to try to justify my behavior, to fall into the 2016 presidential campaigning mode, which is the reply, insult for insult. You've got small hands. Yeah, well, your dad's dumb. Well, yeah, but you have an ugly wife. Yeah, well, I have great hair. Th this is what happens. But that's not what Jesus says to do. That's not what Jesus did. When threatened with death, Jesus, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, did not threaten in return. And he is the only one who has the ultimate, my dad can beat up your dad, comeback. <laughs> and he didn't use it. And Peter goes on to proclaim the extent of Jesus' suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We, cannot get, we can't escape the glorious of the nature of the gospel is, as Paul said, he who knew no sin bore the sins of the world. By his wounds, you have been healed. The power of the sinful, natural instincts that we have to fight back, to reply with insult, 
They've been broken by Jesus. And now, because of Jesus, because he bore the sins of the world, because he was crucified, because he was raised on the third day, we can now live to righteousness, live in the way he wants us to live, empowered by the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of suffering. Using this word picture of a sheep and a shepherd, Peter once again communicates the expectations that God's people will follow Jesus. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's a story, I don't know how true it is, but there's a story that Middle Eastern shepherds don't drive their sheep, rather they lead their sheep. And that the sheep know the sound of the call or the sound of the voice, and so they kind of herd up into their flock and follow the shepherd, to follow in his footsteps. He leads them in good paths. He leads them to waters and the grass. And I love that picture, that this idea is that Jesus is the shepherd, the overseer of our souls, and we are to follow him even in the midst of suffering. Let me just kind of bring this into a conclusion by simply saying this, that being mindful of God will lead us into suffering. But being mindful of God is one of those keys for enduring suffering. Far too often in the midst of our suffering, what happens is that we focus on the suffering itself and not on God. We focus on the circumstances or the context. We focus on what's happening to us, but we don't really think about what God may be doing through us or in us. And so I would say that, that being mindful of God is something that will bring us into suffering, but it's also an essential part of enduring through suffering. But the other key is to do exactly what Jesus did. In verse 23, look at the last half of that verse. I intentionally left it out. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus continued to give himself into the hands of God. Jesus continued to submit himself to the Father in heaven, the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus continued to give himself into the one whom he knew would make everything right again. And so in the midst of our suffering, if we are indeed suffering, perhaps what we ought to be doing is continuing to entrust ourselves into the hands of the one who said, I will make everything right again, that it will be well with your soul. Those given new birth by God the Father into a living hope through the living Son and empowered by the Holy Spirit endure suffering by continuing to trust in He who called them out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So as believers in Jesus face suffering, Peter is very clear the right thing to do is to cling to God through Jesus Christ. The right thing to do is to seek God all the more, remembering what he has done and remembering what he has promised to do. Trusting him for the outcome, trusting that he has given, he who has given new birth will redeem out of that suffering into an internal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that he is keeping both us and it in his power protected. And so that we with Paul can say we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Continuing to entrust the self to God, even in the midst of unjust suffering, is trusting that he has something good, something better in store. And finally, it is public testimony. It is public witness. Go back to Daniel chapter 3 for just a short moment. Remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing punishment for refusing to bow to this golden idol of Nebuchadnezzar. They said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Continuing to trust in God is to trust that he will do what he has determined is good and right according to his plan and purpose in his timing, regardless of the nasty circumstances we find ourselves in. And this serves as honorable living among the Gentiles, so that they may, by God's grace, give him glory. Do you remember how the fiery furnace, how VeggieTales, Rackshack, and Benny ends? It ended with Nebuchadnezzar saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than worship any god except their god. That whole thing ended with God being glorified. Why? Because mindful of God, they suffered in the midst of their suffering. They were mindful of God and continued to entrust themselves into the hands of the one who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. And that's what Peter calls all who follow after Jesus to do. Strengthened by him, being mindful of him, and continuing to trust in him, Jesus is proclaimed, the gospel is proclaimed, God is glorified. That's the endurance of suffering. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.